0: Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful to come to your word this morning. Your word uh, strengthens us, it refreshes us, it encourages us, it focuses our attention on that which has real meaning and significance in life and gets our attention off of that which is the mundane or the trivial and that which has no eternal significance. So, Father, we pray today that as we focus on your word, that you would challenge us, especially in terms of our own ministry within the body of Christ and how we can be more effectively trained that we may serve you in our ministry to others within the body of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. We will look at the last verse, which we studied a little bit last time, and then move on into the second chapter. This section in Colossians, beginning in Colossians 1.25 and extending down through uh, 2.5 is really one of the most personal sections in uh, all of Paul's epistles. There are others that are similar to this, but in each of these, they express something of the apostle's own uh, heart's desire toward those to whom he ministers in these various congregations. The apostle Paul was an apostle. As we've seen in the previous weeks, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, tell us that there were four gifts, four spiritual gifts given to men, spiritually gifted men who were leaders in the church. In commentaries, there's a lot of debate over, well, were these spiritual gifts or gifted men? I, I, I think they're trying to split hairs on that. They're, they're both. God gave these men with these gifts to the church for a purpose. There are four that are listed there, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers. The apostles and prophets were a temporary gift that were were had a sort of a supra-ecclesiastical significance. That means that, that apostles and prophets ministered to the church as a whole, to multiple congregations. Apostles had authority from the Lord Jesus Christ to go out to establish churches, to teach churches. And it was uh, through the apostles that uh, God was going to be revealing the uh, mystery or previously unrevealed doctrines, uh, unrevealed truths related to this church age, primarily through the apostle Paul. And so it is uh, with an understanding of that that role as an apostle that Paul is going out taking the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile as he traveled on his various missionary journeys planting churches throughout, uh, throughout uh, what is now Turkey at that time was Asia Minor, Greece, later Rome and after his first imprisonment we believe Though there's no scripture to support this, that be, but the scripture shows that his desire was to go on to Spain and uh, perhaps to Gaul. There's even some tradition that he made it uh, to Britain, but we don't know that for sure. There's no hard evidence. There's just uh, a tradition and there's some expression in 1 Timothy, Timothy rather that this was his, his uh, desire at least to go to Spain. So he planted these churches, and he had a responsibility as an apostle over those churches. But once the apostolic age ended, with the death of the last apostle, the apostle John, sometime between 95 and 100 A.D., uh, that those gifts of prophecy and apostleship passed off the scene. They were replaced by the... The second and are the third and fourth gifts mentioned there evangelists and pastor teachers, those that functioned throughout the apostolic era, but those are the gifts that continue throughout the church age, ministering to the local congregations, the local expressions of the body of Christ and we are just one of literally thousands upon thousands of local churches throughout the world that focus upon the Scripture, and focus upon the Word of God as the Word of God. Some are small, some are larger, some are uh, not well-trained because they are operating in places like uh, China or in Islamic republics where they have very little opportunity for training. Others are in places in the United States that have been provided an exceptional training. And so you have many different expressions of the body of Christ, but in this particular passage, as we see the Apostle Paul expressing his heart's desire and expressing his the goal and objective that he sees that God has given him as an apostle, we also see something of the thinking that should characterize anyone operating as in a ministry, not just an apostle, this or just a pastor, or just an evangelist. But this, there are principles here that apply to every one of us in terms of that spiritual gift that God has given us and because God has placed each one of us within the body of Christ with a responsibility to be a well-equipped servant or minister within the body of Christ. And so at the end of Colossians 1, Paul states his goal. Now, goals and objectives are very popular things. If you're in any kind of uh, uh, business, profession, any kind of work, then you understand that one of the most important things for you to do is to clearly define your goal or your objective. The more clearly and precisely we define our goals and objectives, the easier it is for us to make sure that we hit the target. If we have a very ambiguous or nebulous goal or objective, that can't be qualified or evaluated, then we're never really sure if we hit the mark. We're never really sure if we accomplish the task. And so the Apostle Paul makes it clear in verse 28 that there is a specific end or goal for his ministry, and this would apply to to pastors as well as any of those leadership gifts mentioned in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 28 of uh, Colossians 1, Paul states, "...him we preach or proclaim, warning or uh, admonishing every man, and teaching or instructing every man uh, in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ." That's his statement of his end game, to present everyone perfect, or uh, the word there is teleos, to be uh, mature in Christ. So it's to this end that he labors. And he uses two different words here in conjunction with one another. He, He says, to this end I labor, that's the main verb, striving. That's a participle indicating how he fulfills the striving. So that first word that we have is the Greek word kopiao, which means to work hard, to work strenuously until the task is accomplished, to labor hard, to work to exhaustion. It's a a sad reality that one of the uh, professions in the world that uh, probably is peopled by some of the uh, laziest, most irresponsible individuals is the pastorate. Now most pastors are not that way. Sadly, there are exceptions, and it's also true on the mission field. Um, this is one of the problems inherent within uh, denominational missions: is a lack of accountability in many cases. Now, this is not true for probably um, 80 or 90 percent of those who are missionaries, those who are pastors. Uh, they work hard. Many pastors also work in secondary uh, jobs. They're like Paul was. They're tent makers at times. They have to. They don't have a congregation large enough to support them, and so they have to also uh, work hard. But sadly, it's true that there are those out there who are uh, use the opportunity of the fact that they're not under any kind of uh, observation by anyone to to not be very. Uh, uh, very, very strenuous in their work towards the sheep. And there are always those who would prefer to fleece the sheep than to strengthen and encourage the sheep. But those are the exceptions. Those who wish to be biblical understand that there is a never-ending, this is also a problem if you happen to be of a certain personality type as a, as a pastor, it's a never-ending job. It's an open-ended job. Uh, responsibility. There are always things that could be done, should have been done, didn't, you didn't quite have enough time to do, and that's one of the reasons I think it's important for men to go through seminary and to have a seminary training. We live in a world today where education is really shifting. Uh, people today want to get an online education, and I've seen this now for uh, 12 to 14 years, where I will hear of men who say, I have the gift of pastor teacher, I want to be trained, Uh, can you provide, where's a good place where I can go get an online education? And people are infatuated with online educations, but I have yet to see an online education program that is equivalent to being in a classroom, having a direct one-on-one relationship with a professor, where you are hearing the kind of instruction that you should be hearing the examples that I know of and I have friends that are uh, teaching in and, and with some of the most uh, well-known uh, you know online education programs and they've also taught for these same institutions in the classroom and they say they have communicated to me how disappointed they are because the quality of the instruction that the students get in an online program is, is, is severely reduced from that which they get in a personal face-to-face, one-on-one type of thing. I think the same thing is true in terms of a local congregation and in being involved in a local congregation as opposed to just live streaming. I know there are circumstances we all face where due to Uh, physical limitations, due to age limitations, due to health limitations or time constraints, work responsibilities, things of that nature, that we can't be a part for legitimate reasons of certain uh, gatherings in a local church or Bible classes. And so it's a tremendous thing that we have live streaming and that we have uh, so much available online. But we have to be careful not to allow that to become a crutch and a substitute for that personal uh, relationship, that personal involvement uh, with individuals. We see this even in uh, the first verse of the next chapter as the Apostle Paul talks about how he he wishes to be able to come to Colossae and to Laodicea and have that face-to-face relationship. Uh, not A distance relationship just can't uh, replace that face-to-face relationship. Relationship. Just think of trying to conduct a a marriage where you are like today. We'll hear terms like bi-coastal marriage. You have one person living on one side of the country and another person living on the other. It's it's extremely difficult. Nothing replaces that face-to-face uh, involvement uh, if if that is possible. So Paul says that he labors towards this end. This sets a pattern for anyone. In any other kind of ministry, whether that is whether your ministry is just in terms of helps within the local church, whether you're uh, involved in in a prayer ministry in the local church, whether you're involved in, in in music ministry or teaching in prep school or any of those things, this applies. In that, this should be our attitude. It is a never-ending task. We have to learn to to always though utilize our time correctly. This is one of the things, as I was pointing out, that happens in seminary. I remember as a seminary student that we would be given so many assignments and they're open and you could spend two hours or 20 hours on that assignment and still probably not cover all the bases. But you didn't have 20 hours to spend on every assignment. There's only so many hours in a week that are usable, that are disposable, and you have to learn how to work efficiently, and you have to learn how to manage your time well and do the best you can do with the time allotted because there's not just the, uh, as a as a pastor or in any kind of ministry, that's not the only responsibility you have in life. You're also a husband. You're also a father. You're also a mother. You're also a wife. Uh, you're al- you also may have another job. All of those things mean that you have uh, limited time. So that idea of laboring emphasizes the fact that we need to work hard at the task, but we have to recognize there are also time limits that are imposed upon upon the task. So Paul says, to this end I labor. And then we have a present middle participle saying, telling us how he is laboring. So it's a participle of means. He labors by striving... According to God's working, the His there, the third-person pronoun relates to God. According to God's working, which works in me mightily, so the first that participle there, agonizomai, as the root, means means to strive or to struggle, to strain, to work hard, to exert oneself to do everything possible to accomplish the task. So there's a recognition that there is, there's work involved. It's not necessarily hard, easy. There's always obstacles to overcome that come in many different, uh, many different shapes and sizes. So we have to think in terms of the end result. The, the issue isn't striving and struggling. The issue is doing what we can to reach the goal. And what is that goal? The goal is clearly stated in Ephesians 4:11 through 13, a parallel passage, as I pointed out, so many parallels between Colossians and Ephesians. If we, uh, the first two verses I've mentioned and paraphrased already that God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers for the purpose of equipping the saints. I liken this to a coach. The coach doesn't get out on the field and play the game The coach is the one who trains and equips the players. The players many times can exceed the coach in terms of their own talents, their own abilities, and their own skills. But the coach is a man who has the ability to train, to motivate, to equip the players so then they can reach their full potential to uh, accomplish their, uh, their task. So the purpose of the ministry of Apostles, prophets, pastors, and evangelists is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the work of ministry in order that they may serve the body uh, the body of Christ. This is that same word related to uh, diakonos and service. Till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now I want to point this out here in Ephesians 4, uh, 413, but this is for, uh, the, till we come to the unity of the faith. It is a unity that is not at the expense of doctrine. We're not going to just hold hands and enjoy the fact that we're all Christians and we all have a uh, commonality, but that there is a unity. And this relates back to what Paul says at the beginning of Ephesians 4, where he challenges them to, Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And then he says in verse 4 of this chapter, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so here he again returns to that theme of unity. There's one faith, one body of doctrine or teaching or instruction or set of beliefs that we have as believers. Outside of that, you are not a Christian. You are operating on non-Christian ideas. I think this is important in the uh, Colossian context because they're under pressure from various religious ideas and philosophies in their culture to not hold to their distinctiveness. There's a lot of similarity today in our culture. There is so much pressure upon Christians today to compromise, to go along with not to make these lines of distinction between the beliefs of of, of biblical Orthodox Christianity and that which is outside of the framework of biblical truth. And the example I pointed out earlier uh, in the uh, the prelude to the uh, communion service is the fact that we live in a world today where there are more and more candidates for office that hold to different, uh, different belief systems. Some, like we've got at least two men running on the Republican side this time who have a Mormon background. There are Mormons on the Democrat side as well. Harry Reid, who's the uh, Senate Majority Leader, is also a Mormon. But we dare not yield to the pressure of uh, of saying that, well, that's just another form of Christianity. That's the pressure that's there, and that pressure will continue to mount. And whenever someone has the courage, as uh, the pastor at First Baptist Dallas did, to make it show this distinction, he immediately comes under assault. And the news media goes out and tries to find other Christians who will criticize this person because they have taken such a stand. It's one thing to recognize the truth, that there's this distinction. It's another thing to use that to justify uh, wrong behavior. And it was interesting in the interview I saw with this uh, pastor at First Baptist this morning that um, when they asked him, well, if it comes down to a decision between a non-Christian like Mitt Romney or... President Barack Obama, who claims to be a Christian, who would you vote for? He said, well, I'd vote for the Mormon. So we have to understand that there are these kinds of decisions out there, but that doesn't mean that we compromise on where we understand the lines to be. We don't fudge the lines. But you don't use the fact that there are distinctions to be uh, necessarily uh, disrespectful or demeaning uh, of other people. So there is a unity of the faith and a unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. There is absolute truth that is non-negotiable. So we all come to, are to come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the pastor's role is to teach the truth of Scripture. And this is how we reach the end, which is expressed by the Greek word teleos I have there, which is expressed in many translations, as perfect, which indi- the word perfect implies f- uh, flawlessness, and that's not what the Greek word means at all. It really has that idea of reaching a determined or defined end, reaching the goal. And so it has more to do with maturity than it does with flawlessness or sinless perfection. So the goal of the pastor, the goal of the apostle, is to equip saints to do ministry. And the way you become equipped to do that ministry is in your spiritual life, your spiritual growth. As And as that takes place, then as you move towards maturity, then you become more effective in your area of ministry. As I have pointed out when I've referred to this in the last few weeks, you don't need to know your spiritual gift. If you're growing and maturing in Christ, then it will naturally begin to manifest itself in the areas in which you would like to serve the body of Christ. And and since we're all required to give, but there's some who have the gift of giving, there are passages in Scripture that talk about how we are to teach one another, but not all have the gift of teaching. Just because uh, you don't have a gift of service or a gift of helps or a gift of leadership doesn't mean that you can't be involved in those areas. It's just that that's not an area that's your strongest area. And as you get involved, you will gravitate to areas where you are spiritually gifted, and that will become manifested. And you can end up at the judgment seat of Christ as a mature believer and say, you know, I never knew what my spiritual gift was, yet you functioned in it through most of your spiritual life. So it's not necessary that you... I hear this from people all the time. Well, I just don't know what my gift is. That's okay. Just serve the body of Christ, and it will be manifested. Now, as we look at our passage and we move through this, this uh, uh, the first verse of the second chapter, Paul says that, oh, let me finish the, the uh, end of the first verse, or the last verse of the last chapter. His working is done through divine power. Now, how do we, are we to understand that? The apostle works through the power of God, which is working in him mightily. There is a mystical view out there that I hear from people every now and then related to a pastor. And they say, well, so and so has the gift of pastor teacher. Just ask him. He'll know. As if, oh, I have the gift of pastor teacher, so let me see. I can just open my Bible and read something, and I know what it means. That's ludicrous. That's absurd. That's absurd. There, there's study involved. The Holy Spirit doesn't inform the pastor of what the, the word means. You don't just get in fellowship and read the text and go, oh, I know what that means, I'm right, and I'm right. That, that, that's like Roman Catholic, ex, the doctrine of ex-cathedra for the, for the pope that speaks without error. That, that's not how the Holy Spirit works. He works in and through the natural abilities and the spiritual gifts And the hard work of the pastor who studies the Word, and a pastor studies and grows and advances. Two weeks ago, I went to a conference up at um, Baptist Bible Seminary in in Pennsylvania, and the focus of this group was called it's called the dispensational Dispensational, uh, uh, hermeneutics hermeneutics of dispensationalism study group, something like that, focuses on hermeneutics within dispensationalism. And so there were a number of different uh, scholarly papers presented by different speakers. One of them was on the doctrine of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I thought that uh, it was fairly well done, gave us a lot to think about, but I thought there was a lot more thought that needed to go into some areas. This whole doctrine of the illumination of the Holy Spirit is one that is pretty difficult to nail down. I mean, you go read 10 different theologians and you'll get 10 different definitions. Uh, it's, it's, it's really difficult to define it, and there are a lot of verses used to support it that don't have anything to do with it. And so I thought, well, this would be a good topic. As most of you know, I meet with a group of pastors on uh, Friday morning. And we go through different topics, so we've been working our way through this paper and various related topics and understanding what it means to have the Holy Spirit illuminate or enlighten us uh, as pastors or as just as believers to the meaning of God's Word. And it, it's not this kind of mystical, magical thing that you just sort of get a shot of truth into your thinking, but that through, in and through the process of doing your study, your hard work, exegetical uh, study reading, God the Holy Spirit is working, and it's progressive. I understand things today better than I did 20 years ago. I understand some things to be one way today that I taught wrongly 25 or 30 years ago uh, because I'm growing. And so we have to factor that into the process. And so uh, the Apostle Paul is simply stating here that Ultimately, anything that good and right and true that comes out of my ministry is not the result of my effort. It's the result of God who's working in me. Anything bad or negative or uh, unacceptable isn't God's fault. It's my fault. That's my flesh interfering with God's work in my own life. So we have an end game, and that is an end game that of of, of service to one another, and an end game of the unity of the faith and spiritual maturity. Now, a word was introduced in verse 28, wisdom, that is going to be picked up again in verse uh, verse 2 of, uh, of the next uh, chapter, or, or, or similar, two similar words. We have wisdom in 128. We have understanding and knowledge in 2.2. And I just want to express this in terms of how we, how we under, understand this. So let me summarize something. First of all, we see that God defines the goal. The goal is spiritual maturity for everyone in the congregation. That's what the pastor's goal is, is to equip. I can't, I can't make you mature. I can only provide you the opportunity, the teaching, the tools, but you have to exercise your volition to learn the word and to apply it so that God the Holy Spirit working through that can bring you uh, to maturity. But that's the objective of the pastoral, pastoral ministry you may say, well, how do we measure that? Now, that's an interesting question for a pastor because I I, I don't look out there and see little uh, pictures over each one of you with, with kind of a guideline telling me how mature this one is or how mature that one is or what's missing in this person's life or what's missing in that person's life. Um, there's no way to really quantify or measure that. But as I pointed out in previous verse, uh, previous lessons, uh, that uses the same kind of terminology that we see in those last four verses of Colossians 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 through 4 Paul talks about the same uses the same vocabulary the stewardship of the mysteries of Christ what's required of a steward is that he be found faithful a faithful pastor is one who is faithful to God in his study of the word and is faithful to his congregation in doing all that he can within his uh, uh, background, within his framework, within his spiritual gift, to enable the congregation to grow and reach maturity. So the measuring stick for the pastor is that he's faithful. And you can tell that by how a pastor teaches and what he teaches. You can tell whether or not a pastor is just, uh, going on the internet and going to Sermons or Us and downloading a sermon for this Sunday. Or whether the pastor is, uh, and they, I think there actually is a website called Sermons to Go. Or whether the pastor is actually in the word thinking about, uh, what it means and how it applies to the congregation. And ultimately, he has to do that through the Holy Spirit. So when we think about maturity, the second point I would bring out is that maturity begins with understanding and knowledge of biblical truth. Two words we'll pick up uh, later on in verse 2. It begins with understanding and knowledge of biblical truth. That is what the Bible teaches in terms of how we are to think and how we are to live. It's not just some magical thing, but it is learning all that the Scripture teaches about how we think and how we are to live. Uh, and that it's based on that way of thinking. So we have three words that come together in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. And this first word is the word understanding. Understanding. This word we find more in the Old Testament than the New. The Old Testament word is bina, or sometimes just bean. And it is, um, I used to memorize this in uh, in Hebrew vocabulary, that bean is like between. You learn how to discern between two options. So That's what understanding is. It has to do with with discernment between that which is human viewpoint and that which is divine viewpoint. So it's a biblical concept often related to how we put things together. When you look at events in your life or you're faced with a set of circumstances, what goes on in our heads is that we immediately have to interpret that set of circumstances and put it, and we, what we do is we put it within some sort of framework of thought so that it has m- some sort of meaning or understanding uh, to us so that we can then take a certain course of action. Now, that, that's what this word means in terms of understanding. Biblically, it's used of human viewpoint as well as divine viewpoint. For example, in Proverbs 3, 5, we're told to trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? Lean not on your own understanding. There it's clear that your own, our own understanding is, is a framework of thought that's based on our finite experience or human viewpoint thought versus God's way of thinking. So understanding relates to a, a, a framework of thought that is, that is biblical. Knowledge, on the other hand, is information plus that framework of thought. That is understanding. So we learn facts, but and we learn information, and we live in the information age. And there is more information available to all of uh, any of us on a day-to-day basis than the average European villager in the Middle Ages had in his whole life. And it's overwhelming. And what I see happen with a lot of Christians is they get out on the Internet and all of a sudden they're exposed to the fact that there's all these ideas about Christianity that they never heard of before and then they begin to doubt and question what they're taught about the bomb. Next thing you know, they're into agnosticism or atheism. And they've just they've just been shipwrecked on on the the shoals of too much data. They don't know how to handle it. So knowledge has to be incorporated within a framework. That's why so often I've spent time dealing with understanding everything within the framework of biblical thought, why Charlie Clough identified his ministry as biblical framework thinking, so that we can put the big picture together and the pieces then of knowledge and information we have fit within that overall biblical framework. And then we have the word wisdom, based on the Hebrew word chokmah, which isn't the Greek idea of abstract wisdom, which is philosophical in nature, but in the Hebrew mind, it's very practical application. It's the ability to, to make something that is beautiful and attractive. When Aholiab and Be, uh, Be- Bezalel and Aholiab, who were the uh, Jewish artisans who were crafting all of the furniture for the, for the temp- t- uh, tabernacle back in Exodus, are given the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives them skill, chokmah. Now, that's not doctrinal wisdom there, as we might think of it, but it it shows us what the core meaning of the word is. It's the skill at their craftsmanship, taking their natural talents of working with gold and silver and wood and giving them an enhanced ability to do it in such a way that brought about a remarkable, remarkably artistic and beautiful product. So, We have these three things. Now, we live in an age today with so much information that people have forgotten a basic principle that information isn't knowledge. People think that because they have so much information, they have knowledge, but they don't. They just have data. Knowledge combines a framework understanding with the information. So information isn't knowledge, and knowledge isn't wisdom. This comes only through uh, a lot of detailed study. So Paul goes on to say, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Obviously, he had a lot of people who were reading his letters corresponding with him whom he, he had never met. He had never been to Colossae, but some of the people in Colossae had come to Ephesus and heard him teach there and gone back to Colossae. He had never been to Laodicea. But those who he taught in Ephesus had been sent out, and they had established churches all over Asia Minor, even though the Apostle Paul never went out there. But he's concerned about them, and he uses a word related to the verb we used that he used back in verse 29, striving, he, agonizomai. Here he uses the noun form agon. This is related to the English word agony and it has the idea of contention. It was a word that was used for any sort of contest or rough competition or tough competition in a sports contest. It was something that, where you had to work hard in order to gain uh, gain the victory or to gain success. And so the, um, uh, the Apostle Paul states that, I want you to know that I have this great, struggle this great conflict it's not easy being an apostle it's not easy being a pastor and there's two places in in second corinthians where he is defending his apostleship to the corinthians and he reminds them of what he has gone through for them and for all those in the church let me just take you through a couple of these passages in second corinthians chapter 6 verse 4 down through uh, 10 he speaks of the struggles that he's gone through. He says, "...but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers." There's that word diakonia again. It doesn't just mean deacon as the office. It means service, to serve God. And so therefore that applies to all of us, not just as apostles, but Paul has a has a, an entourage that travels with him that help him, and they're all working in different ways in terms of ministry. And so he says, "...we commend ourselves as ministers of God." in much patience. Now that's the Greek word hupomone, which has, it's better to say, translate it endurance, you know, being, hanging in there, not quitting, even though things get rough, in much patience, in tribulations, and that's the word we studied before, thlipsis, which means adversity, in much adversity, in needs, that's kind of a awkward old antiquated way of translating this word it's a nenke and it has to do with more with compulsion and self-discipline that as i face obstacles as i face difficulty in accomplishing the task god sent before me i have to get up in the morning i have to do what i need to do whether i feel like it or not because i have i have self-discipline i am going to to work through the task and accomplish the mission, no matter uh, whether I feel like it or not or what the obstacles are. He goes on to say, in distresses, he uses a a different word here than philipsis. He says uh, uses stenachoria, which means difficult circumstances. Uh, The next verse he says, in stripes, plaguing. Now that sounds like just whipping, but it wasn't right to, to flog a Roman citizen. Sometimes it was, just, it was just beatings. Now, a lot of these are not recorded in the book of Acts, but we learn from this that Paul went through a lot, of physical torment and torture as a result of his ministry in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, and that word for tumults means confusion, chaos, where people just didn't know what they were going to do. They didn't know what the next day would bring. Uh, in labors in sleeplessness, in fastings. And fastings is a bad translation here because that implies some sort of spiritual purpose to the hunger. And here it just they, they didn't have enough money to buy food for the next day so they had very little and at times they were, they were hungry. Now how did they overcome that? By purity. That's again an awkward way of translating it. Hognos is the Greek word. It's related to... The word for for sanctification and holiness, hagias. so it means by sanctification, by growing spiritually, by knowledge, by studying the word, by long suffering. That is by uh, by patience. By in, it's related to endurance, but it brings in more the idea of of not becoming impatient with the task. By kindness, by means of the Holy Spirit, we're empowered by by God the Holy Spirit in our spiritual growth, by sincere love. I don't like the word sincere. I think the idea here is more by a genuine love produced by God the Holy Spirit in their, in their life. And then he goes on to say in this section, he's using the uh, Greek preposition in plus the dative to express means, and he says, by the word of truth, that is scripture, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand, and on the left. Uh, but then he begins at this point to bring in a a, a different approach. He starts in by uh, with this last phrase, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. A different preposition is used. It's no longer uh, the preposition in. It shifts to the preposition dia. and an in, And from this point on, he lists nine different pairs of opposites, the right hand, the left, honor, dishonor, evil report, good report, deceivers and true, unknown, well-known, dying, living, chastened, yet not killed. What he's, he's expressing the fact that there's these two opposing responses to his ministry. That for any pastor, there are those that accept him and those who reject him. There are those who uh, believe that he's teaching the truth, those who reject him, those who uh, those who praise him and those who ridicule him. And so you have to endure... All of that, the praise as well as the uh, condemnation. You know, some people will praise you for whatever you do, just be, for whatever reason. So he goes on to say, um, verse 9 is unknown, yet well known is dying. Behold, we live. All of these are the different responses to his ministry. In 2 Corinthians 11, he gives us another list of things that he's gone through. And here he's countering the charges related to some false apostles. And so he is uh, expressing a polemic against them. He says, are they ministers of Christ? No, they're not. And he says, I speak as a fool. I am more a minister of Christ. And, he, and here he's going to look at his sort of his resume of, ha- of, of conflict that he's overcome He says, in labors more abundant, I work harder than any of them. Most of them are lazy, they're just causing trouble. In stripes, that is in beatings above measure. In prisons more frequently, in deaths often, life was threatened. From the Jews, he says, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. None of those are recorded in Scripture. What this means is that he he was taken by... Those in a synagogue and condemned, and according to the Torah, they were you weren't supposed to give a person a whipping of more than forty lashes. So that in Jewish tradition, you would only give thirty-nine, forty less one, to make sure you didn't miscount and, and break the law by giving more than one, more than forty lashes. So five times he was he was given thirty-nine lashes. Uh, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We know of that in Damascus, where he was let down over the wall during the night, and he escaped. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst... In fastings often in cold and nakedness, besides the other things which can 't come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So when Paul states this and we look at what he says in, in at, for example, at the end of verse uh, chapter one verse twenty nine to this end I labor, this is what he 's talking about his laboring in overcoming all of this opposition. And so he wants them, to, those in Colossae to know uh, th- this great struggle he has. It wasn't easy for him to carry out the ministry. And the purpose for this is that it is for encouragement, that they may be incur- their hearts may be encouraged by being united together, there's a better translation here, united together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of, of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. So the purpose is to strengthen. That's a better way of translating. um, Sorry about that. Running out of power here. Let me go back to uh, get the slide back up there. Being knit together, uh, that they may be encouraged, has the idea of being strengthened in their spiritual life and their spiritual growth. Then that's followed by a participle, sum, sumbibadzo, which means to, it has the idea of means by being united in love. That's a process. And that comes, same as it does over in Ephesians 4, as a result of spiritual growth in the study of God's Word by being united in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Now, Remember, Paul is dealing with a bunch of people who are being assaulted by, the, by a Greek culture that is promoting something similar to Gnosticism, that if you just get the right, the right words, the right tool, the right method, the right knowledge, this super secret initiation into the mystery rites, if you just get that, then you will solve all your problems. It's the, it's the magic bullet you can solve all your problems if you just get the right thing. And in contrast, what he is saying is no, you have to be strengthened through spiritual growth. It involves your growth in love towards one another and your growth in understanding and living in light of all of the riches that Jesus Christ has provided for you. And the only way to know that is through understanding and study of God's of God's Word, to understand the mystery of God, which we saw in the previous passage relates to the incarnation of Christ. Now, this idea of the riches of Christ are found in a number of different passages in the New Testament. Romans 11.33, Paul exclaims, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He's saying this is, you can't measure the depth of it. Every now and then I hear people say, well, you know, I've been going to a Bible church for the last 30 years. I've learned enough. Really? You'll never learn enough. A billion years from now and into heaven, you will still realize that you only understand maybe a mustard seed of all that you can understand because God is infinite in his knowledge. We never will be. Even a billion years from now, we still have a lot to learn, as much if not more to learn as we've already learned. It, if you don't like learning, you better figure out some way to lose your salvation because you're going to be learning for eternity, which is a long time. So the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge are immeasurable and his ways, his judgments are unsearchable. But we have these riches in Christ. Ephesians 1.18, Paul's prayer is that the eyes of our understanding should be enlightened, that we may know the hope of his calling, which are described here as the riches, the wealth of the glory of his inheritance. That's our future rewards and possessions in the saints. In Ephesians 2.7, he says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 3.8, he says to me who am less than the least of all the saints This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. See, the riches of Christ has to do with our spiritual growth and our spiritual life, so that as we attain to all the riches, as Paul says in Colossians 2.2, that is a term for our spiritual growth to attain to understanding all that we have in Christ, all that we are in Christ, and living on the basis of that, And that is described then as the mystery of God. It's not something that's hidden. It is this new revelation that God has given us in Christ about himself, that no one had seen God at any time, but that the Son explained him to us. So it is through Christ we come to understand God, and only on the basis of Christ and our relationship to him can we really understand all that he's provided for us. And when we do and we live in light of that, that is when we are beginning to reach our goal of spiritual maturity. We'll come back next time and uh, start, start up in verse 3. Father, thank you for this time together to study your word. Father, we pray that we might be encouraged and strengthened and motivated from your word to recognize that wherever we are in our spiritual growth, and our spiritual life, however much we think we have atta- attained, there is so much more to attain. There is... Uh, so much to learn there's so much to study there's so much to challenge ourselves with in terms of trusting you in every area of our life and we pray that in looking at this we might understand too that that we have a ministry each of us no matter who we are we have a ministry to the body of christ and we need to push ourselves in terms of spiritual growth that we may be a of spiritual service to one another within the body of christ Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture makes it clear that salvation is a gift. It is free. It is not something we earn or deserve or work for, but it is something that has already been accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross so that all we need to do is to trust in him and him alone. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today. In Christ's name, amen.